The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. About eight days after Peter had acknowledged Jesus as the Christ of God, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his countenance was altered and his raiment became dazzling white. And behold, two men talked with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they wakened, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he said this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out from the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silence and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So I have a couple pairs of these old thick-framed glasses that I keep around the house that my kids now use. And Nori, especially when she was smaller, loved to put them on. And they're just these like really thick plastic nerd rock glasses. And every time that she would put them on, she reminds me of those really silly TV shows. You know, the ones where they take a woman who is just obviously gorgeous, they slap some glasses on her, and that means that she's just this nerd who's sort of overlooked by all the characters, right? Whatever guy is taking up the scene. But of course, partway through the episode, something happens that she has to remove the glasses and, wow, she's stunning, right? Ta-da! She's so beautiful, as if somehow glasses mean that you can't see that. I imagine that for most of us, if we think about the transfiguration at all, we see it as some version of the nerdy girl losing her glasses. Ta-da! He's shiny. As for all the weirdness about Moses and Elijah showing up, well, who knows, we think, and we move on. But I think when we slow down and read this story within the context of the entire scriptures, we'll see its magnificence and we'll understand the choices that it's presenting to us. So to situate us in this event, I'd like us to look at the traces of the Trinity on display in the Transfiguration, the echoes of the Exodus, and the dullness of the disciples. I think there's something that's revealing about how thinly we tend to read this story, because if I were to do a silent vote on how many characters appear in this little story, I bet most of us would say six. Jesus, Peter, James, John... Moses, and Elijah. And then a few of us who were those kids in Sunday school, we'd say, no, there's seven, right? God the Father, he talks, he's there. And actually, our brothers and sisters in the Eastern churches who have 
fixated on this story in the Gospels more than most of the Western church would say, actually, there were eight on the mountain, but only six were visible. Because this is one of those strange, frightening moments where the Holy Trinity peels back the dullness of our senses and we see God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's why, at least in our tradition, even though this is not the Feast of the Transfiguration, we always cap off the Epiphany season with the story of the Transfiguration because it's this bookend of Epiphany. The revelation of Christ to the world, these experiences that are so overwhelming that Luke is clutching every scriptural and apocalyptic metaphor he can find to try to explain what is taking place. And the symbolism with which Luke is writing starts at the very beginning of this little passage. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. This is a big moment. And then Jesus, in turn, predicts his own death. And then Luke tells us that it was eight days after this that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain. The eighth day is the day of resurrection. It's the day of new creation. This is why in ancient churches the baptismal font was eight-sided. It was, it was a symbol that you were entering into the new creation of Christ. So for Luke to say it's the eighth day, he's not just trying to give us a log of what Jesus was up to. We have no idea what date it was when Peter said, Thou art the Christ. What he's getting at is Jesus is about to reveal to us the new creation. And as they're up there on this mountain, the appearance of Jesus changes and he becomes like flashing lightning, which is a symbol of God's presence. It's a symbol of the Spirit coming and making holy noise in the midst of God's people. And a cloud comes and covers them. It's also a sign of God's presence. And then the voice of the Father speaks, This is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Do you notice what Jesus is doing? He's praying. Luke tells us twice in the space of a few words that Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. And as he's praying, this whole thing happens, which is exactly like his baptism. When he comes out of the waters of his baptism, it's as he's praying that the Spirit descends upon him and the voice of the Father booms from the heavens. Which means we need to understand something about the reality of what happens in prayer. I completely understand that it may feel at times, if not most of the time, that you might just be talking to yourself or to the ceiling. But the triune God is powerfully present in prayer. If you were to go through and, and see Jesus' life in ministry and, and look at all of the things that he's doing over and over again, Jesus, the spirit-filled man, He's always coming back to this one thing. He is always seeking the will of his Father in prayer. Prayer was his primary means for understanding what it was that his Father was asking him to do. The Trinity is here. Luke's purpose in recording all of this fantastical stuff for us, the change of appearance, the lightning clothes, the dark clouds, it's not to give us a superhero origin story. It's to reveal to us that Jesus is none other than the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Really? 
I mean, you guys don't just have to accept things that I say because I wear, you know, fancy jammies, as my wife calls them, if you haven't heard her say that. Is Luke really telling us that Jesus is Israel's God from the Old Testament? Again, if we were to read the symbols that Luke is using scripturally, I think we'll see there are all sorts of echoes of Exodus throughout this story. Here's just a few. The phrase that Luke uses to tell us about Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah, that they were talking about his departure. Departure is the same word used for the Exodus in the Old Testament. The Exodus of Israel from Egypt is the paradigm, of course, for salvation in the Old Testament, right? God comes and rescues those who cannot rescue himself and, frankly, don't really deserve rescuing anyway. And the exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish in Jerusalem isn't his departure in ascension. It is rather his departure, his exodus in crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. It's the whole thing. As God led the people out of Egypt with many signs and wonders, including the Passover, where the angel of the Lord came through demanding the life of the firstborn son, and the people of Israel in faith painted the mantles of their doorway with the lamb's blood so that God would pass them over. And so now God is passing over the firstborn of all humanity by the death of the capital F, first capital B born of all capital C creation. That, that title is not a, a, a description of inception. To say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation is a status designation. Jesus is fulfilling what the Lamb's blood in the Exodus pointed to. But where does God lead Israel when they leave Egypt? A mountaintop. Here they are again. And how does God lead them? And how does God reveal himself in that leading and at that mountain? He does it through a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, and the mountains smoldered and smoked, and there were flashes of lightning. And Moses, who's here again in the transfiguration, when he saw only the back of God, his face glowed so brightly that the people had him veil it when he spoke to them, and they begged him to speak to God on their behalf because they were too afraid to do it. And here's Jesus, a new type of Moses, the fulfillment that Moses was pointing to. He will lead people out of slavery and captivity to sin and Satan and bring them to the promised land where God dwells with his people, where he dwells in his people by his spirit. But Jesus is not simply a new Moses. No, he has the brightness of lightning bursting forth from within. It's not a reflection of another person's glory. It is the glory of Yahweh himself that resides in Jesus. Jesus is also a new type of Elijah because just as Elijah took the message and miracles of Yahweh to those outside the nation of Israel, so Jesus brings his message and his miracle of salvation to all people, to all tribes. But he's not just the new Elijah. He gives out the Spirit and he pours out the Spirit on all flesh, men and women, slaves and free, Jew and Gentile. Jesus is not undergoing an internal change in the transfiguration. He is not becoming God. Jesus, from conception, has always been the God-man. The transfiguration is an epiphany. It is a revelation. It is a tearing back of the curtain to reveal his true self 
to these three disciples that he is the incarnation of the God who exodused Israel out of Egypt. And he is the chosen one of the Father who will bring about the exodus of many through his death and resurrection. But the disciples, true to fashion, don't seem to get it. We're told that they're very sleepy, which happens again when Jesus brings them with him to pray on the night of his betrayal. And this is actually a thematic element throughout the Gospels, that the disciples seem to have this lethargy that they just can't shake, and it goes beyond physical tiredness. It's more like spiritual dullness. It's an inability to stick with it and to have faith to the reality beyond what our senses can perceive. Of course, when they do wake up and see what's going on, they start to sort of piece together that something really important is happening, and they're pretty scared. But even still, they're not quite getting it. Peter, the patron saint of people with foot and mouth disease, pipes up. Oh, yeah, let's, we'll just build some tabernacles for all three of you. I mean, how insane is that, right? Here's two patriarchs that have been dead for thousands of years. Yeah, obviously they need a house. Let's get the tents out. In many ways, Peter's response has been the wrong-headed response of the church in various times and places ever since. Oh, there's glory here? Let's box in the glory. Let's erect a monument to the glory. Let's contain the situation. And it's a failure to perceive what God is doing. As Luke so generously tells us of Peter, he didn't know what he was saying. This dullness gets confirmed in the very next story that Luke records where there's a demon-possessed boy and the disciples of Jesus are unable to do anything because they still don't understand what is happening in the spiritual world beyond the veil. I fear, though, that we tend to get it even less than they did much of the time. I don't know about you, but I grew up in the church, and I think I have grown all too accustomed to hearing the stories of this loving God to the point that I no longer really experience his love as actual grace, right? It's just kind of this expected thing. It's just sort of always there. And yet when we see this cloud covering the disciples and they are filled with fear because they know what that means, I was saying this earlier today. We were doing a training of acolytes. This is partly why we don't sing songs here that make it sound like seeing God is somehow a fun experience. Because the disciples, even in their drowsiness, are gripped with fear as the cloud envelops them. Why? It's because this is the cloud of God's presence, and it is here that people die. because we are not fit to stand in the presence of a holy God. And this has to start coming back to us more and more so we can recognize how great his mercy is. The only reason that I am not struck dead when I put out my hand to prepare bread and wine for Eucharist, when I am calling on the Holy Spirit of God to come down and make a change, is because God is merciful. I'm not worthy to stand here in the midst of these mysteries. 
So we are to be the ones who find ourselves in these stories of Jesus, in the people around him. We're the wishy-washy crowds who one day love him and the next cry crucify. We're the dull disciples. We're the antagonistic religious establishment. We play all the parts, sometimes even all at once. So the question is, what is it that we're being called to as a response to this revelation, this epiphany of Christ's glory? Some of us, it, it could be that we need to confess like Peter did just before this episode that Jesus really is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one that was promised from before human memory almost began. He is the one who was to come, who will set all things right. We are called each and every day to believe and confess that Jesus is God and that he has accomplished an exodus for us in his own death and resurrection. That we aren't making that exodus on our own, but he has somehow made it on our behalf. All we need to do is walk with him out into the wilderness. Some of us may have already made that big, profound confession, that conversion, but perhaps have not followed him in baptism. And if that's the case, I would love to talk with you because we're coming up on baptism time. Easter is around the corner. Following Christ means following him in the sacramental life of the church. Many of us here, I'm sure, though, have already done both. We have already confessed Christ as Lord and followed him in baptism. So what are we called to now? Throughout the Gospels, the followers of Jesus are constantly and repeatedly called to faith, to really get all of their trust out of themselves, out of their money, out of their circumstances, and to put all of that weight, all of that trust, all of that hope in Jesus. That is what we're called to do. We're called to stop assuming that we're going to find a way out of whatever jam we find ourselves in and start trusting in Jesus. And we are also, like the followers of Jesus, called to wake up and watch and pray. There's something about being a, a broken and fallen human that pushes us to sleepiness, toward dullness, toward the things of God. I mean, this is one of those... I, this is where I shouldn't go off my notes because all my analogies are, are terrible from fundamentalism summer camp. But you know, you know the story of the, of the fish, right? The dead fish can't swim against the thing. I mean, but, there, but right, you guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I need help. <laughs> but there's a kernel of truth, right? You've seen this in your own patterns of life. I can't be alone in this. That if I just sort of start to coast... I don't find myself being intrinsically more drawn toward God. I'm more drawn toward selfishness and dullness and laziness. There's a fight happening within us. There's a real spiritual warfare that, that the devil wants to keep you locked in that spiritual dullness where you cannot perceive the spiritual reality behind the veil of physicality. It takes effort. We have to constantly, day in and day out, wake up and sit 
and watch and pray. We have to recognize that there are people in our families, in this room, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our favorite coffee shops that are being crushed under the pointlessness of modern life. You don't need me to tell you that. The nihilism of our culture is is just unceasing. We have these unachievable expectations that we are just breaking down under, and we have them placed on there by ourselves and by other people. And you and I have been given a message of freedom and hope, a message that Exodus has already been accomplished on our behalf. We don't need to wake up and watch and pray simply for ourselves, although that is a huge part of it. We have neighbors and coworkers who need the light of Christ reflected in the faces of those who sit and watch with him to pierce through the darkness of their existence. Lent begins in three days. And if you're with us next week, uh, it's going to be heavy, okay? And so before we get to the heavy, I just want to say the good news in all of this is that failure is met with mercy. Because none of us are reflecting the glory of God in the way that we should, not all the time. And it's fascinating to me that Peter, of all people, you, you would think, right, wouldn't you like to believe that if it was you on that mountain seeing the glory of God on high bursting forth into all of your senses, hearing the voice of the Father, experiencing what Peter did on the Mount of Transfiguration, don't you like to believe that you wouldn't desert Jesus? That you wouldn't deny him? to a little servant girl who can't do anything to you? And yet he does. He denies him, and he denies him again, and he calls down curses upon himself in denial. But when he sees the resurrected Christ, what is he told? Feed my sheep. This is a table of mercy. It's a place of grace. We have to understand the holiness and the power of God for it to become grace and mercy again. And that is part of what we're going to be doing in Lent, right? Not just beating ourselves up, but recognizing the chasm that is between us and this holy God. And yet, he comes and he feeds us with himself that we might go and tell the world of his great goodness towards us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.